Yes, we're reading on uh, page 396 in Mark 9, 14 through 32. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he, it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you, if you can, wait a minute. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying it to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will arise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome again to Bayless Baptist. I don't know what brings you here today, but I know we all need God's word. God has brought you here with intention. The question is, is why? That's a question I would encourage you as we begin to look at these words, is why God has chosen to have you here. That may be a strange thought for some of us, but I think we'll find that in this passage, God really knows us really well, and he has words of comfort to address us with. Even as we see one of the most powerful statements, I think about the nature of faith in this passage, a statement I have quoted more often than not, yeah, several times, and I've had quoted back to me, I believe, 
help my unbelief. And I'm looking forward to, to unpacking what that means and why I think it's so important for every Christian, for every follower of Jesus to wrestle with the power, the, actually the profound statement that that is. And so, but nonetheless, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we are going to be continuing in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 9. Um, and I, we're going to be picking up again in verse 14. One of this passage, in this passage, I think, as I mentioned before, this, that we find this tension, don't we, between belief and unbelief, a very tension that I think Christians, including me, experience all the time of the complex relationship between doubt and faith in the Christian life. Even for the strongest Christian, there is a sense for all of us in which we believe, and yet in another sense that we well, don't. At least not as we should. You see, biblical faith really does come on a spectrum. That may be a surprise to us as well. It's not an on and off switch. It's, there is strong faith and there is weak faith. And I don't know anyone in this room who wants weak faith. Though if that's you, let's talk after service. Yet strong faith may not look, what we, look how we think it does and the path to get there may not be what we think it is. This morning, we're going to consider this passage in four parts together. And we're going to find, again, the nature of faith, I think, along the way, as well as how we gain strong faith. But you're going to have to excuse the really cheesy rhyming between each of these four points. When faith fails, when faith quails, what faith entails and where faith prevails. I told you, it's super cheesy. I can't help it. I don't know why. But nonetheless, here, we're going to look at our first point, when faith fails. But let's set the stage a bit. After all, some of us may not be familiar with the events that come in Mark's gospel up to this point, or maybe you're just as forgetful as I am. But this passage picks up right after one of the most important, and to be honest, most disorienting events in the whole Bible, especially in Jesus' ministry, an event that, was, that Peter, last week in his sermon, so excellently described, called the transfiguration. Transfiguration. You may not have heard that word, but the word means something like a, a drastic change in form or figure. A, dra- a drastic change in form or figure. As the curtain is pulled back on the cosmos, if you will, revealing the nature of Jesus Christ, his full, complete nature as fully God and fully man, now revealed for his disciples to see. There on the mountain, Jesus is revealed as, again, not just as a human being, although he was 100% man. It's essential to the Christian faith. But in some sense, he was also 100, I shouldn't say in some sense, fully, he was 100% God as well. 100%, 100%. That he had the piercing glory and eternal power of the Almighty God, greater than Moses and Elijah, the point, in fact, of the law and the prophets. And as God the Father says of Jesus, this, not Moses, not Elijah, not any prophet that has come before, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You can imagine Peter, James, and John, who were the clo- the, uh, on the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the only ones to witness this event, all wondering to one another, what just 
happened. You can even hear in the passage that they did not know what to say. But even so, they're the only ones to see this happen. We find out that they don't talk about this until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which begs the question, where are the other nine? It doesn't take long for us to find out as Jesus and the three descend the mountain together only to find the rest of the disciples where? Well, it seems at the foot of the mountain. Are they welcoming their return? No, they're at the center of a crowd in panic and anger. Why? Because of something they said? No, rather, something they did or rather couldn't do. The circumstance here of what's going on needs a brief comment. After all, the condition that confronts the disciples here, in addition to his inability to hear or speak, bears all the signs of what we would know today as epilepsy specifically of a grand mal seizure, including, it's going to get a little technical, but nonetheless, for those of us who have medical background, the tonic stage where the body goes rigid, the teeth clench, and a person begins to foam at the mouth, or the clonic stage that follows it, including violent convulsions followed by a loss of consciousness. Reading this, we would say, well, we know in our medical textbooks what this is. This just shows primitive, backwards, uh, um, Uh, thought about that they blamed all these conditions that now we have control of and can diagnose and have understanding of. This is just primitive ways of blaming it all on demons. Again, some of us would say someone like this needs medical treatment, not an exorcism. We know better today. What we know, though, uh, is what we need to see from our passage is that even those in the first century weren't so reductionistic as to attribute everything to a demonic influence. Otherwise, we would see Jesus casting out demons everywhere he goes, anytime he heals someone. But in this case, we see something unique going on, not just a physical condition, not just a physical circumstance, that the Bible has a large category for. It says sin has affected every part of our world. Not only are there dark forces that, yes, war against human beings, but that our own bodies are broken. But we see something more than just simple epilepsies going on. We see it in the fact that the seizures often threw him into fire or water, as verse 22 says. Why? To destroy him. That what the father has begun to notice over the years as he's mourned the condition that his son is experiencing is that there's a malevolent force at work as well. Can you imagine the terror? How out of control this dad feels. Imagine this happening to your child if you're a parent even if you're not a parent i think you can imagine it and happening on the regular what lengths do you think he had gone to get him the help that they that he needed what lengths would you have gone who knows how long he had traveled to finally get to this miracle worker jesus only to find that the miracle worker was gone still he had his disciples And then, what did he find? As he says, I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. Don't read that with a period. Don't read that without passion. Read that as a desperate father saying, I I came to you looking for help, help, and even they couldn't help me. Do you hear the heartbreak in it, the desperation, the anguish of a father who does not know where else to go, what to do? The strange thing 
before we get to what Jesus does next, is that at various points in Mark, in fact, two different places prior to this, Jesus explicitly says that he has given his disciples his own authority, including the authority to cast out demons. In fact, they are sent out at one point to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to call others to respond to Christ's coming kingdom and to give the evidence by healing and casting out demons. It's not something that they're newbies at. They've done it before. And yet for the very first time, Jesus' power has failed them. And it's publicly failed them. And the whole thing wasn't just embarrassing. You see, it was all their opponents, and there were some serious opponents of Jesus at this time. It was all that the scribes at this point, who were just looking for a reason for that Jesus to, to uh, for, for one reason to uh, invalidate Jesus, to uh, cause him to lose face, to, to uh, show him to be the charlatan that they were assuming he was. They were looking for one reason for him to trip up, and now they have found it as his followers fail and fail in public. And it was all that they needed to now launch into an attack and a furious argument is underway. Maybe it's just me though. And the whole thing, uh, see if I'm picturing myself in this event, the whole thing feels just uncomfortably personal. You see, this is literally my worst nightmare. I don't know about you. I mean, have you ever tried to help someone and found that you couldn't? And maybe I should ask, have you ever tried to help someone and it backfired on you? It blew up on you? That's what's going on here when Jesus shows up. And notice how then Jesus responds. Does he say, I mean, it's okay, everyone. I'm here now. I mean, you should have known better than to go to my sidekicks. Come to the real thing. No, we find out that Jesus strangely gets really, really irritated. I mean, is anybody else, this just breaks your categories of the meek and mild Jesus, him saying what he says in verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I mean, if you, again, thinking of a parent, how many times have you said that to your kids? Oh man, how long must I be with you? Okay, this is Jesus saying to those in front of them, his own closest followers who are needing someone to get their back, who has their back, who's going to defend them, coming and saying, Oh, you faithless generation. Does the whole thing feel a little uncomfortably honest? Who is he talking to here? The crowds? Is he, I would say, maybe. And yet I think given all that's going on and all that Jesus has said to his disciples even prior to this, including his confrontation with Peter, where he says, get behind me, Satan, I think that Jesus is talking about his followers. He's lumping them into the crowd for the very first time as if to say there's little difference between you and this generation which he calls faithless and both Matthew and Luke two other accounts that talk about this event add twisted talk about twisting the knife faithless and twisted generation talk about adding insult to injury what's going on here well, I think this passage reminds us how incredibly painful and lonely it would have been to be Jesus in his earthly ministry. You see, here we see very honestly that Jesus knows his closest followers, even after calling him the Christ, still don't 
get it. Even as his irritation might be shocking to us, what's even more shocking is that Jesus stayed with them, that he did bear with them. In fact, he stayed so that they might finally get it. Just like the prophets who had come before him, he was called to a long and lonely ministry, a long, difficult obedience in the same direction. Sometimes we can depersonalize Jesus and look at his ministry as somehow easy because he was the son of God. But notice that what Jesus laments here isn't a lack of power. It's a lack of faith. Why did the disciples fail? Was it because they were resting on their past laurels, their past successes in casting out demons before? Maybe. Was it because Satan was now fighting back stronger than ever now that Jesus had been confessed to be the Christ? Maybe. But it is their lack of faith that Jesus laments. That I think is ultimately why the disciples were unable, which leads to the next point, not just when faith fails, but why faith quails. Now, at this point, everything the Father has mourned comes front and center. As Jesus asks for him to bring the boy, and as he brings him near, the demon, upon seeing Jesus, throws the boy into another violent seizure. You can almost imagine, at this point, the demon taunting Jesus, as if to say, he's mine, Jesus, and what are you going to do about it? Did you see how your disciples tried? How did that work out for them? Jesus then asks, before he addresses the demon, how long has all of this been happening? But I want you to notice the father's answer in verse 22. And... Let me read it one more time for us so you can hear these words. After describing how long this has taken place, he says, but if you, referring to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Again, do you hear the desperation of a father with no other place to go? If you can do anything, have compassion. Even as he asks him to help, do you notice in the Father the same thing in the disciples? Do you notice his doubt? In fact, even as Jesus will call him out for it, I think we see reasons for doubt we can relate to. Three of them, in fact. And the first reason that he doubts, and I think we do too, is we doubt Jesus' power. Now, it sounds like a strange thing to say, especially after all the disciples have seen, after all this is Jesus we are talking about. Jesus who fed crowds, who stilled storms, raised the dead. I don't know anyone, or I, I should say, I don't know any Christian that would say that Jesus isn't powerful to help. And yet, I think, functionally speaking, we live very often, maybe it's just me, as if he wasn't. We're used to, I think, in our daily life to handling things on our own. We're used to relying on ourselves. Some of us, just to be honest, haven't really had any other option throughout life. You have 
Maybe you've been abandoned or failed by more people than you can count. And you expect, even without realizing it, that God, when it comes to it, will too. He'll break his promises just like everyone else has broken theirs. Well, others of us, we're not entirely sure we need God's power. I mean, we wouldn't say that out loud, but not only are we used to trusting ourselves, we may be pretty convinced that we do a good job at it. We don't necessarily need God to intervene. I think that's the temptation, particularly for those who live and sit where we do, in one of the wealthiest societies on the face of the planet, is that there are ways for you to meet your daily needs more easily than there are for many other human beings, or I would say the majority of human beings on the planet right now. And there's a seduction, a kind of God complex that can come with that to assume that, yeah, I know I need God, but generally speaking, do I? Sometimes, Again, we are used to handling our things on our own, but another reason we can doubt Jesus' power may be the issue itself, what we're facing. It's so overwhelming. It just feels too big, too hopeless. For too long, it's too far gone. Maybe we feel too beyond change for even God to intervene at this point. There are cases, we would say, that are less hopeless than ours that Jesus is likely to prioritize. We doubt Jesus' power. Or like this man, we doubt Jesus' goodness. You see, we may fully believe Jesus' power. We may fully believe Jesus is able to help. We just aren't sure that he wants to. Again, it may be because you feel too caught up in your own shame to expect that God would intentionally give you his time. You failed too much for too long for God to show up for you now. You expect what Jesus has just demonstrated. You expect Jesus' irritation, not his compassion. Or we doubt because Jesus didn't show up for you in the past when it really mattered, not like you expected. Why would he now? Maybe he just doesn't understand what a big deal this is for me, how much we actually need this thing, or maybe, maybe he just doesn't care. Whether we realize it or not, some of us right now are still, years later, holding an unanswered prayer against God. You can hear both of these doubts in the Father's request. He says, if you're able, have compassion He wants to know that Jesus is both powerful enough and that he cares enough to help because of course we need both from our God. But these aren't the only doubts. In fact, these doubts, we would say, may not be there at all if it wasn't for a third doubt. And it has to do with the disciples themselves. After all, if the disciples had just been able to come through for him, Would these doubts be there in the first place? And the third reason we doubt God is because we doubt Jesus' followers. To To be honest, many of us have been failed miserably by those who call themselves Christians. Some of our greatest wounds and skepticism come from the fact that we have been treated poorly by those who claimed to follow Jesus or didn't show up for us when it matters, and the pain of it is still eating us up today. Maybe you, just ha- you haven't just been failed by others, though. Maybe, like me, you realize you are the one who has failed others. 
Maybe you just, all your memories are of the times that you have tried to help again and it has only backfired on you. The regret of that can be suffocating. Whether we doubt Jesus' power or Jesus' compassion or Jesus' followers, I think we want to say, isn't it good to know that Jesus welcomes hard facts and he welcomes uncomfortable doubts? He doesn't walk away and he doesn't heap more shame on him. And yet, he doesn't let him stay there, does he? He doesn't just pat him on the shoulder and say, oh, it's okay, man. We all have doubts. As if the doubt, and I think this is unfortunately very common today, as if the doubt itself were somehow a sign of real maturity, of real spirituality, as we can somehow refer to, some ways refer to doubt today, holding on to our doubts, as if they were what made us real and humble that they show a complex faith and that was somehow more authentic than the simpletons who find faith to be easy. But Jesus calls the doubt out. He doesn't expect that the doubt will remain. He confronts it. He calls him, even in the midst of doubt, to doubt his own doubts as if the man had more faith than he realized. Which brings us to the third point, what faith entails. What faith entails. Notice Jesus' words in verse 23. I'm going to read this again so we get the emphasis here. Again, thinking of what the man has just said. If you can do anything, what does Jesus respond? And Jesus says to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible. But then notice what he says. For one who believes. I have to tell you, this line had me a bit hung up, to be honest, I mean, I would have expected Jesus to say something like, if you can, don't you know who you're talking to? I have faced worse than this. Power is kind of like my middle name. If I can, this is Jesus who you're talking to. But he doesn't say that. Even as Jesus has the ability and the desire to help, he doesn't just point to himself. He points to the man. He calls him from doubt to faith. Now, by faith, I don't mean faith like we so often mean faith, as if faith were just some kind of a holy hoping for the best, crossing our fingers and leaping into the dark without reference to common sense, the opposite of reason. That's not what we're describing when we think of faith. This isn't the power of positive thinking. Rather, what Jesus is calling the man to do is to focus his attention on something more real, more true than his overwhelming circumstances are. He calls the desperate father to focus on him, to believe in him. Not just to believe everything's going to work out, but why will it work out? Because he trusts him. That, that kind of faith can accomplish anything because Jesus can accomplish anything. Now, of course, I need to add the clarification. This isn't a blank check for anything our fickle imaginations can come up with. I remember in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and I don't know how many times I and other young men like me prayed for a girlfriend. This isn't a blank check to get your dreams, to get the Corvette, to get the job, to get whatever you name and claim. 
There are those who misuse this statement and have used it to say that all you need to do is claim that job or that relationship or that election outcome and God has bound himself to provide it. I just encourage you to go back to those so-called prophets and see how many things they've claimed for Jesus and how well that's worked out for them. Jesus at various points will clarify that we need to pray according to his will, according to what God has made clear about his own desires and plans. Sometimes, this is why God hasn't provided, because we haven't asked according to his will. We have asked for something that contradicts his will. Sometimes, as James, another author in the New Testament, will point out, the reason God hasn't provided is because we haven't asked. Isn't that simple and straightforward? Sometimes the reason God has not provided for you is because you haven't asked him to, or you asked once and then you gave up. Or because God, even as we ask again and again and again, even as we don't realize, is providing in a better time or in a, de- in a better way. I appreciate Tim Keller who has said that, our, uh, that God always answers our prayers how we would if we knew what he did. That's a very profound statement. God always answers our prayers. Thanks, Chris. God always answers our prayers how we would if we knew what he did. But moving on, we dare not soften Jesus' statement too much. We can look at Jesus' statement and we can so work around it, so explain around it, that we don't end up hearing the strange and rather extraordinary claim that Jesus makes, that this kind of faith is capable of anything. We can so clarify what it doesn't mean that we don't look at what it does mean. After all, Jesus seems to assume that what is standing between this man, the thing that is standing between this man and the miraculous healing of his son is the Father's faith. It is his and our bridge. Faith is his and our bridge to the miraculous power of God, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Matthew's account of these events as if to affirm this, later when he's discussing these events with the apostles and the meaning of this, when they ask him, what does this mean? Jesus adds in Matthew 17, verse 20, if you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, the smallest thing you could think of, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Again, we need to ask according to God's will, but do you still believe that prayer is power? Do you believe that it is the bridge to the miraculous power of God himself? It's as if, through prayer, God's servants share in his power and authority. Now, we don't get to dictate it. He still remains God. He is king, the sovereign one. But sometimes, God chooses to rule through his servants, through his prayer, through, through, through their prayers, I'm sorry, exercising his will by that means. Even as we, I ask to provide, God to provide, though, I, I have to tell you, I, I struggle to believe this. I struggle to believe that faith is actually the bridge between my frailty and God's sufficiency. I struggle to believe that all things are not just possible for Jesus, but all things are possible for those who believe him. You can hear it in my own prayers. If, this, if, you aren't, I, if you aren't like me, that this just feels a little too extraordinary to be true, perhaps we haven't thought about it long enough. 
But in my prayers, do you catch yourself saying this? Somebody is in desperate shape and you're praying for God to heal. You're praying for God to restore. You're praying for God to do something miraculous. And some part of you says, yeah, probably not going to happen. That's why we often pray, Lord, your will be done here. That's certainly true. Praise the Lord. Yes, pray for his will to be done. But also be specific in what you're asking. I have had, uh, just as an aside, I have Crohn's disease. I hate Crohn's disease. It's the worst. I'd ask you to pray for me, but the Lord uses it like Paul with a thorn in my flesh, and it teaches me a lot about Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But nonetheless, I hate it, right? So, like, nonetheless, it's, but one of the things, I asked somebody in a prayer gathering, uh, Lord, I, no, I, said, I said, brother, would you pray for my Crohn's disease? Pray that, pray that God would heal me. And he launches into prayer, Lord, we, we know that you are a God of comfort. Give him comfort. Help him to endure. Help him to know that you're there. Amen. I'm like, yes, pray for all those things, dude, but you missed the request. Ask that the Lord would heal. Some part of us, even as we pray, expects, at least in this case, that he's just not gonna. The question is, is why? Imagine how our prayer lives would change if we really believed that this was true, which brings us to that important line, a line I can hear myself say, even with you, I believe, help my unbelief. I tell you what, for some of us, this line makes no sense at all. Some of us, we would say, well, you don't mix belief and unbelief. It's like, again, an on-off switch. Either you believe or you don't believe. As Yoda put it in Star Wars, uh, you do or do not, there is no try. I'm not going to do my Yoda impersonation. But nonetheless, yet experientially, I think we have to say that the tension between belief and unbelief is something we know on a daily basis. We're always a mix of belief and unbelief. Even the strongest Christian I know, one of the ways we talk about it is that there's a difference between our head and our heart, right? I know things in my head. Why doesn't our heart believe it? It is a matter of faith. I, in fact, I think this awareness, though, from this father is essential, actually, to true faith. And it's especially essential if we want our faith to grow stronger. You see, faith, again, isn't just on and off. It is something that grows. How? Let me give you an illustration. On my wedding day, Grace and I made all sorts of promises to each other. You would expect that in the context of those promises, that, again, were basically about the fact that we're not going anywhere. We bound ourselves to this thing, and we're in till death do you part, baby. You'd expect that in that context in that relationship we would have been extraordinarily comfortable with one another after all we had just promised no matter what happens sickness health poverty joy we aren't heading out the door there was no need to impress anymore there was no need to keep trying to earn the other person's love and yet somehow we kept trying it took some time for us to really begin to trust one another. And some of us, we've been in marriages where we've never been able to arrive at that sense of trust. It took us some time that if we really showed our ugly, we would still be received and loved. In reality, we needed to grow to know one another. But as we grew to know one another, trust became more and more natural. 
especially when we failed. Flowing from a relationship where we were both known and loved. Our faith grows in the same way. It grows as we know the object of our faith, which I have to tell you is not ourselves. The faith is not located in me and in my reputation, in my own power, it is located in Jesus Christ. Our faith grows as we grow in our understanding of the object of our faith, which is Jesus himself. As we spend time with him, as we seek to know him, as Jesus gets bigger and better in my imagination, bigger and better than everything else that I encounter. Or as another puts it, another pastor has put it, as my understanding of Jesus progressively conforms to reality. What he means by that is, as I come to know Jesus and I come to know what's actually true and what is more true than my circumstances, no wonder I would see him as bigger and better, which means that perhaps the reason that you struggle in your faith, the reason you struggle like the disciples to help others when it matters, you struggle to trust when everything falls apart, is because you need to grow to know the one your faith is in. I'm convinced this is why the disciples failed so spectacularly and why Jesus responds that demons like this, later on to the disciples, that demons like this can only be driven out by prayer. What is he saying? He's not giving them magic words to recite in that prayer. In other words, it takes the kind of faith that can only be cultivated through prayer, desperate, honest, expectant prayer. They needed to grow to know him. Let me ask you, How much time are you giving right now to cultivate that relationship? Could it be that the struggles you're having with patience, lust, anger, indifference, insecurity, discouragement is because that relationship has waned in its priority? Faith is cultivated, grown, nourished as it roots itself deep in the knowledge of Christ. This is why daily time reading and meditating upon God's word and praying in response to what you find there is the most basic way to grow in your faith. It's not some legalistic obligation that Christians say, if you really want to make God happy, then read your Bible every day like you eat an apple every day to keep the doctor away. It is the most sensical thing, because why? In the word of God, through daily attention to it, serious attention to it, as if it was bread, as if it was a meal. That is where I find Jesus, friends. That's how we know him. That's how we hear his voice. You don't just need time off. You don't, definitely don't need more time on Netflix or Instagram. We need time with the author and perfecter of our faith, to know him as a very best friend. But I want to look even more closely at this phrase because I think that the cry of true faith is, I believe, help my unbelief. And in this cry, I think we find a three-step process toward stronger faith. Three A's. I told you, this is all super cheesy. All the rhyming, all the alliteration. I don't know how to do it any other way. But the first one is, here's what the first one is. Admit. If, like me, you want stronger faith, the first step is admitting you don't have it. 
The reason that I think the cry of true faith is, I believe, help my unbelief, is because that statement, in that statement, we say two very important things. I do trust you, and I need your help to trust you. Some of us think faith is essentially uh, fake it until you make it. It's why in our relationships we become plastic, where all of our cards are kept close to the chest, and we never let anyone know the real doubts and insecurities we face on a daily basis. We try to pretend that we're doing better than we are, as if somehow God was honored by that. Sometimes we hide these things even from ourselves, slapping a smile on our face and hoping that if I can fool everyone else, I might be able to successfully fool myself. But as David Edwards puts it, commentator and biblical scholar, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. And for that reason, you could say that the father here is as desperate for faith as he, as a, uh, as he is desperate for his son's healing. He admits it. But in doing so, he also asks, and not just for one miracle, but for two. Which leads to the second step, ask. Ask for the very faith that you lack. After all, where do we expect faith comes from? Is it mustered up from shutting out all the negative voices and negative energy and canceling a bunch of people and unfollowing them or drinking a couple cups of coffee? Ephesians 2 tells us that faith is a gift, as much as a gift as salvation itself, and it comes from the very one our faith rests upon. Ask from the very source of your faith, the very object of your faith, where else would it come from? But last, and this is one step we must not skip, act. Notice how the man leads with, I believe. He doesn't just own his doubt. Even as he is aware of his stubborn unbelief, he admits, at least in small measure, a mustard seed of faith. Some of us think, in other words, we, uh, let me give you a practical illustration of this. Some of us think we can't take the next, of, next step of faith, that God's asking of us a really risk-taking step of faith until we're completely convinced, until we're completely ready, until our faith is stronger, even when it comes sometimes to becoming a Christian. I know plenty who have plenty of questions answered and they've wrestled with the claims of Christ and they just say, I, you know, I'm not ready, as if they all be more ready, just give them five minutes or five more years. Sometimes that is the case. But we figure I just need a few more questions answered before I'm all in and then I'm all yours. Just give me a bit more time. But friend, notice that Jesus, knowing how weak and uncertain the Father is, expects him to still act on the little he is certain about, to trust him, even in the fragile state that he is in. I know many, and maybe this is your experience as well, that didn't experience the faith they wanted until they acted in weakness. Because when God then showed up, God got the glory and not them. They were able to say, truly, it was not the strength of my faith that saved me. It was God himself that rescued. Let me ask you, is there something right now that you know God wants you to do and you don't feel like you have enough faith to do it? Even if some part of you wonders if he is really strong and kind enough to save you here, even if other Christians have failed you before, would you risk upon the little faith that you have? 
The only other alternative is to wait until you're more ready or to, even worse, go ahead and act on your own strength and not his. And that will never produce more faith. It will only produce more self-reliance. You want to know a better way to deflate faith, an opponent to faith, is to rely more and more not on God but on myself. The thing is, it, this, uh, it is often when we are at our most desperate, when all other hopes have failed us, that finally catches our attention. That God finally catches our attention, like He caught the Father. It is often in the moments where the bottom has fallen out of our lives and we have nowhere else to go that we finally see the only place to go, which ends up being really important because as we're going to see in our story, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Where faith prevails, number four. Look at verse 25 and 26. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. Hold off what we already know about how this story will take turn out before you keep reading. Can you imagine the crowd, the disciples, what they're thinking at this point? Not only have they failed, but apparently Jesus has too. Have you ever experienced something like this? You trusted God, finally you took that step and he didn't come through for you? He didn't just seem to fail you, but he left you off worse than you started? In fact, many have found that when they started to follow Jesus, life got messier It got harder. It got more awkward and uncomfortable than ever. Sometimes, in opening your life up to Jesus, you become more aware of your failures than ever before. You start caring about things you never cared about before. And Satan fights harder against you than he ever has. And then I don't know how many people I know who have trusted God long and hard, people of resilient faith who have prayed and prayed and prayed for things that seem to correspond to God's will who then still lost the very thing they were pleading with heaven for. They didn't get the job. The marriage still fell apart. The cancer came back. The child died. What do we do when trusting Jesus seems to make things worse? We need to know the story is not over. How can we know when everything in us tells us to give up on it maybe like Job's wife, to curse God and die? How do we know that we can still trust God, that the story isn't over? Because of what this passage looks forward to. A day in which the disciples would lose everything. The very one that they were growing to know and to trust, Jesus was stolen from them and it broke them. Even the fragile faith they had snapped. And they failed him. They failed not just the crowd, they failed Jesus in an even more unforgivable way. And they abandoned him to his death alone. On that day, it wasn't belief that prevailed, but their unbelief. And on that day, too, it seemed like the powers of darkness had won. And Jesus knew it. 
As for the second time in verse 31, he speaks of his own death that is coming, of a day in which the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They would kill him. But the interesting thing here is that phrase, delivered into, the Son of Man will be delivered into, doesn't just mean that he was betrayed, handed over by the Jewish authorities to Rome for them to do their worst. No, it refers to something much more strange and much more profound. Rather, reading the Bible carefully, it was God himself that delivered Jesus over to death. Why? So that we, like this son, might only know life ourselves. Verse 27 reads literally, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. Now we soften it a bit here and we say he arose, but they are the same word. Now that doesn't mean that he actually died and Jesus rose him from the grave, but nonetheless, the word is intentionally chosen by Mark to think of another resurrection to come, as if to hint at another day that where all hopes would be lost, that instead would give way to life and the only means by which Satan's power will actually finally be broken. I don't know what you might be facing or mourning this morning or what questions it has awakened or how fragile your faith may feel, but Jesus can be trusted, friends, and the appearances of your circumstances can be deceiving. In Jesus, we see that even at our darkest moments, even where everyone else around you tells you to give up hope, God is working a plan too wonderful for words. And if indeed your faith is in him, there is coming a day where you and I will see clearly and say together, I knew it. I knew I could trust you. I knew you would come through on your promises. I knew you are a God who is powerful and good. For truly only our God can take death and evil and work them against themselves. And before we conclude this morning, I want to ask your help this morning as I want to spend some time in prayer about some very specific things. Obviously, we have plenty of things to go to the Lord to pray for, and I want to ask you to spend some time praying now. But there are two things as a church I want to ask you to pray for where we desperately need God's help. We need the resurrection power of God to show up. And the first is that as a church, as you know, about five years ago, we approached what was seen to be our imminent death. And God has done a mighty work since then, hasn't he? But the, but the challenges aren't over, friends. We need God's help to provide us a next step to where we can make disciples unhindered by the current costs of this building. To be honest, it's a decision that has been avoided for years and years and years with no clear solution. But if the Lord is the one who provides for his church and has called us to the task, do we expect that he will provide again? But how is it that the Lord provides? As his people pray. And as you pray, we must and we dare not be anything other than specific in asking him to provide. Not because we are mashing buttons on a vending machine, but because we want the Lord's glory and we want to continue the work he's asked for another generation that needs it. Friends, I would ask you this morning, we're gonna spend some time in prayer, but the second thing 
is that as God continues to provide life to our church, there's a lot that wars against its unity, a lot of petty preferences that we can end up warring over, that your pastor can get frustrated over. We need to know the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you pray that our culture, as God chooses to preserve and to make disciples, actually makes disciples? That we see people come to Jesus Christ as his people become bold in evangelism and as they take personal ownership in helping to do others spiritual good, pointing them to the way and following Jesus who is their Lord, longing to have more to worship him. Would you pray for our church with me this morning? And as we do, would we expect that the bridge between the miraculous provision of God, the, between our frailty and his sufficiency, his faith. He is able. And when he provides, he alone is going to get the glory. Lord, we come to you as Father, as a Father who loves us. He told, Jesus tells us to approach you as Father who is in heaven, which means you're a Father who wants our best and knows our best, and you're able to provide it, and we need you to. I want to start by saying I don't know what all the situations are in our church, what they're, what they're facing and enduring and mourning. Would you be faithful to them as they, take, as they act upon the little faith that they have, the mustard seed, as they trust that you are a God who can be believed upon and they do what you're asking of them as the very means by which their faith grows. And Lord, would you provide very specifically for our church? Lord, we need you to provide. We need you to provide wisdom to the elders of this church as we evaluate what options we would have to more wisely use the tithes and offerings of this church for, the, for gospel work, to no longer be wasted. Lord, we ask for wisdom about what you would have us do with this building if it's to be used as a, as a tool for ministry in a more strategic way, if you're asking us to relocate ourselves, if you're asking anything of us, Lord, we want to have the courage to respond and the wisdom to know what's best. We pray for the unity to preserve the saints in this church as we take this next step, not for Bayless's name, not for any of our names, not for any of the pastors or preferences, but for the sake of Christ, that he would be made non-ignorable in our city. We pray that you'd produce in this church a culture of disciple-making, that even now we would begin to risk to encourage others, to stir one another on in the faith, even if we don't feel very strong ourselves, to grow up in our faith by trying to encourage and be discipled by one another. And that you might save in our church. You might call many from death to life to follow King Jesus with us so that he would be worshipped all the more loudly, both by us and more who would be added to this number. You're the God who provides, and we know that any tensions you allow, you are catching our attention. The question is, is why? We look for you to, to show up. As Hezekiah said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that brings us great hope. We pray this in the wonderful assurance of what it means to be bound up with Christ and have life with him and already have a living hope that is ours in heaven, incorruptible and unfading, which never will falter or fade. It's for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.